So when we're talking about different traditions, specifically different Buddhist traditions, you have on one level how it's currently being practiced by specific monks and nuns in different traditions. So the, the practical differences in many ways between how Tenzin lives and practices and, and the way I live and practice, we may have a lot in common. We may have different, uh, many things different. Um, but that's very much on an individual level. But then you have more of the, the theoretical differences between Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. And so I... Th- without just trying to, I think, lump everything together and say, well, all traditions are the same, we're all basically the same thing, glossing over the differences, I, I think that also does a disservice to each tradition, right? So as part of what we're doing, we're not, we're not trying to say, oh, Vajrayana, Theravada, we really practice the, the same, mm-hmm. uh, it's just slightly, just different color robes. It's, <laughs> it, uh, it, it honors the tradition to be able to uh, look at the differences, understand uh, where the differences have come from historically and how they manifest. Do you want to say anything before? I 100% agree. <laughs> carry on. Okay, in that, <laughs> in that case, I'll carry on. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, I guess we're all the same. You know? well, then. So, so <laughs> now it is understandable that sometimes people get confused when they hear teachers in different lineages talk about enlightenment, uh, talk about what an arhat is, talk about what a bodhisattva is, uh, talk about what enlightenment is, and they seem to be defining these things differently. It's very easy to to become confused. So as a, just a small way of, of, of trying to uh, clarify that, we'll start with, I can start from the Theravada perspective. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, when, the, when the Buddha talked about enlightenment, that's an English translation that we use for the term Nibbana, N-I-B-B-A-N-A. So uh, Nibbana was considered the ultimate aim or the highest human potential. And the Buddha had attained enlightenment. The, the term he used then for everybody else attaining enlightenment after him, full attainment, was called an arahant. Now, the Buddha also called himself an arhat. So, an arhat is a term for all people who have attained the highest level of awakening. And the Buddha is a bit more special, not because his level of enlightenment is deeper, but because he had an additional level of of, uh, many, many qualities. Some arhats are a great teacher. Some arhats are maybe not such great teachers. Some arhats are are uh, have very uh, are adept in samadhi. Some arhats may be less adept, but more adept in insight. And so you have different qualities, but only a Buddha has all of these qualities perfected. And so it's like a a super special arhat. Now the the term. in in the Pali tradition, for someone who aspires to become a Buddha in a future life is called a bodhisattva. So, in the Buddha's teaching, in the Theravada tradition, he's always emphasizing and encouraging people to practice the full enlightenment in that specific life. However far that, that they can take it in that specific life, take it, if you can take it to full enlightenment, then that is, uh, that's uh, the greatest use, the greatest benefit one could, could uh, achieve in one lifetime. And the way that an arhat is defined is that what we, everything that we identify, both physically and mentally, that would lead to further existence, or rebirth, 
ceases yeah, at the at the uh, when an arhat dies, then what is termed the five khandas or the collection of mental physical entities that we identify with as self that ceases without remainder. I mean that is just the basic definition of what happens when an enlightened person or Buddha dies. It ceases without remainder. So there's no there's no way that from the Pali Theravada perspective, there's no way that an arhat or Buddha could uh, continue to exist or or be reborn, intentionally or unintentionally. And so this, from this perspective then, uh, you still had a certain number, of, a, certain, a certain dedicated uh, uh, percentage of people who would say, well, I, I find the Buddha so inspiring that I want to keep practicing in the round of, of birth and death and to- so that I too can perfect these qualities and in some future eon, after, after millions of lives of perfecting these qualities, then I too will be able to be born as a Buddha and, and uh, be able to teach and begin a a sasana or a dispensation or religion or tradition in the same way that this, uh, this Gotama Buddha did in our history. So this was the, the basis for using these terms. And then one of the significant differences in the, when the Mahayana uh, began to coalesce into its own tradition was that the way that the terms Arhat, uh, the, the term Arhat was was redefined slightly in the term bodhisattva, or in this Pali, uh, the Sanskrit word bodhisattva, that was also redefined. Um, what happens after a, an arhat or, or a Buddha passes away physically, that was uh, somewhat redefined. So can yeah. I pass it on to you sure, at this point? Sure, And yeah, so the way that it's presented in the Tibetan tradition as Achan said, you know, same concepts, but slightly different presentations. So, <clears throat> you know, when I was learning in the Tibetan tradition, it was presented that there were these two kind of ultimate goals. One we usually call liberation, which is like nirvana. And then one we call Buddhahood or enlightenment. So in the Tibetan tradition, enlightenment and nirvana aren't synonymous they're actually kind of distinguished so there's a goal of becoming a buddha and then there's the goal of becoming an arhat and uh, we we describe an arhat as someone who's liberated and this kind of goes back to a, a basic kind of idea in india at the time of the buddha that was kind of adopted by both hinduism i think also the jain tradition and, and buddhism that we're reborn over and over and over again, right? So there's this idea of rebirth that I think, you know, everybody in this room is probably familiar with that idea from Buddhism. And that, the uh, you know, one goal is to be released from this ceaseless round of rebirth. We say, the way we explain it in the Tibetan tradition, we say, for ordinary beings, the forces that sort of cause that rebirth, almost I think of it as a catapult that flings you from life to life to life, is karma and delusion. So the forces of delusions, ignorance, attachment, aversion, and all of the other disturbing emotions which then lead to karma and then keeps creating the cause to be reborn over and over. So we say in the Tibetan tradition, an arhat is a being who's liberated from that ceaseless round of uncontrolled rebirth in samsara, so freed of the kind of momentum of karma and delusion that would cause rebirth. So that's one goal. And then we distinguish Buddhahood as another goal. And so we say a bodhisattva is a being who has determined to attain Buddhahood. And we, we say a Buddha has additional qualities that an arhat or a liberated being does not have. So additional qualities that enable them to be of benefit to beings, to lead beings on the spiritual path and so forth. So a being who has 
determined that that's what they want, has decided that their goal is full enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, then becomes a bodhisattva. That's the word that we use. And then those beings, after a certain point, are free at a certain high level of realization. Those beings are free of the forces of karma and delusion. So they're no longer reborn due to the forces of karma and delusion, but they're reborn due to their aspirational prayers, their compassion, and their loving kindness for other beings. And an example, and this is something very unique actually to the Tibetan tradition, these reincarnate lamas, like for example, when we talk about His Holiness the Dalai Lama, we say he's the 14th Dalai Lama. So it means the 14th recognized reincarnation. So in our view, we say the Dalai Lama is not reborn over and over through the forces of his ignorance, attachment, aversion, and bad karma, but he's reborn through the forces of his compassion and altruistic intention to manifest as this being like the Dalai Lama, help, teach, you know, show up, fly around. I mean, I look at his travel schedule and it's like I'm 30 years younger than him and there's just no, you know, 20 years younger than him actually. And it's daunting to even think, right? But somebody who manifests in that way life after life. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, but wait, he's reborn in samsara. But we say samsara is the condition of being under the control of karma delusion. So a being like that can be in this world, on this planet, but they're not in samsara anymore, right? Because for them, they're not under the control of karma and delusion. And so that's how the paths are distinguished, you know, a little bit kind of more in the Tibetan tradition. And so that wish to become fully enlightened for the benefit of all beings is known by the Sanskrit term bodhicitta. So you were asking the question of the different techniques of meditation in the Tibetan tradition, and there's a whole range of techniques of meditation that's supposed to awaken that aspiration, like that's seen as a great intention, a great aspiration that is developable, right? So sometimes people will have a sense of admiration for that noble idea of like, wow, I want to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. For example, in my own personal story, when I was in high school, I was a hippie teenager in the early 70s and learned transcendental meditation. Remember you guys that are my age, the posters of the Maharishi everywhere? And then I was like reading, right? And I was reading anything I could get my hands on, which wasn't much in like 1974. But somehow I came across, I think it was Edward Conzi, this like really bad translation of some Buddhist scriptures that had these words like sin, like all these terrible kind of Judeo-Christian words. Those were the kind of translations. And I remember reading about this bodhisattva intention, right? So I was really inspired by just that noble idea. Not at all that. I mean, basically, I just wanted to like pass you know, algebra class and like go to the prom with the guy, you know, it's not like I wanted enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, but there was some resonance with that. So in the Tibetan tradition, we develop that. Like if we have that sort of, whoa, that's amazing, then there's a lot of meditation techniques that we do to sort of like get us in that that stream of what we call the bodhisattva ideal or, or sort of the bodhisattva path. So that's how they're distinguished more. And then there's another long story of how you progress towards these two goals and the journey is a little bit different and the stages of realization on the path are explained a little bit different in the Tibetan tradition depending on kind of which stream you're on. So historically, <clears throat> the main, if you, if you look at Mahayana Theravada and want to say, well, what's the difference in a nutshell? It's that the Theravadans, their aspiration is to uh, attain arhatship. And the Mahayanas, their aspiration is to uh, uh, be a bodhisattva uh, for attaining Buddhahood. But even that, I mean, that's a huge simplification. But where that comes from is, is there were sectarian um, 
not just divisions, but what we were speaking to earlier, uh, 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 competition, mm-hmm. right? And you would, that is definitely part of Buddhist history, the different sects and traditions. They would, they would compete whether, sometimes it's just very good-natured, you know, as a way to sharpen one's concepts. <clears throat> but when the Mahayana started to come into its own, then there was a certain dilemma there. You say, well, if you take the teachings of the Buddha as the highest, or he's already given the highest teachings, what could be higher than, than what the Buddha has already taught? And yet, um, when the Maha came into its own, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, there was a whole new set of sutras that came into existence at that time. Right? Um, and so, what they began to look towards as their, their basis was a, a whole new canon of, of, of teachings, uh, volumes and volumes of, of teachings that were then different from the Pali tradition. And initially, the Pali tradition was still there and they were studied side by side, but gradually the, the Sanskrit um, versions of that um, took prominence. And so if any time a new group comes into existence, part of, part of it, I think, for the, for the unenlightened people within that tradition would be to as a, a, a move towards self-justification. Yeah. Uh, if we're doing something different, then there has to be a reason. You know, it must be better in some way. Right? And so then the idea that well, attaining to become enlightened in this lifetime is somehow uh, lower or not as, um, is not as expansive, as, uh, uh, as worthy of, of benefit to all beings as if everyone practiced the, the idea of, of becoming a Buddha in the future. So that's how these, uh, these terms then became redefined and then an arhat, uh, specifically an arhat, was kind of lowered in terms of the idea that uh, it was, theoretically at least, not full enlightenment. You know? If you talk to a traditional Tibetan Buddhist, they would say, yeah, arhat, it's fine if you want to be an arhat, but you know, you're not really done. You're not really done with your work. You know? mm-hmm. When an arhat dies and they realize, oh, oh, I still have all this work to do. And now then they go on to the Mahayana path. Right? So that is like the typical... That's the traditional Tibetan way of looking at it, mm. right? That may not be the way mm. that, that you or I look at it, but, but that is, you'll find that in texts. I mean, many times I would read Tibetan texts in Thailand, you know, we get English translations of Tibetan texts, and there's so much uh, great stuff in there. But then woven throughout that repeatedly is this idea that... that uh, The, the Hinayana, as they would call it, uh, uh, really is only the very beginning stage before they get to the advanced teachings. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's just, that's like part and parcel of, of, of the theoretical aspect of Tibetan Buddhism. And so that comes from a redefinition of terms, because the, uh, if you define the highest level of enlightenment as an arhat, you know, then there can be nothing further than that. Right? So it's, it's only when it's redefined mm-hmm. that it can be uh, confusing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. and it is interesting to kind of look at those very traditional ways. I, I tend to, you know, it's interesting to think about what is the flavor of Buddhism in, you know, the West is a very generic term, let's just say North America. As Achan has said, as Buddhism was transmitted from northern India where it, you know, was founded due to the different countries, it kind of took on the flavor of the different countries that it traveled to. Like, for example, when Buddhism was transmitted to China, 
Taoism was very much sort of the world view. And so this sort of hybrid, a little bit of Buddhism and Taoism became Zen or Chan as it's known in China. And then when Buddhism was transmitted to Tibet, there was an indigenous tradition called Bun that was very shamanistic. So Tibetan Buddhism has this very shamanistic flavor to it. So I've thought often of Buddhism coming, let's just restrict it to North America. And I think our common language isn't even really kind of Judeo-Christian. We might think, oh, it has to kind of be transmitted through the language of Christianity. But I think our common worldview nowadays is much more psychology and Western science, isn't it? So I tend to think of, of things very psychologically myself. That's just, I think, my worldview is like translating as I, you know, when I was answering the question about this sort of idea of Jungian archetypes, that's really helped me to understand some of these visualization practices. And I think there's such a wide variety of aspirations because, like, what works for you? Like I mentioned, when I was in high school and I read this Bodhisattva ideal, I was like, yeah, I want that. And when I was in long retreat, one of the questions is about long meditation retreat. For me, just personally, that idea of I'm not just doing it for myself, I'm doing it to develop these qualities to enable me to benefit others. Because for I was in three-year retreat in a year in the middle of de the desert in Arizona that was one summer was the hottest, driest summer in a hundred years. For southeastern Arizona, that's saying something. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, I was like concerned for my kidneys. You know, I couldn't drink enough water to even like, uh, you know, we won't go into detail, but... There were times it was so hard, and, and, but holding on, like for me, psychologically, that idea, you know, so sometimes I think, okay, there's his, the historical view, but also maybe did some of these ideas arise just out of people's psychological needs of what really worked for them. I'm reading a book right now called, um, it's quite old, and somebody gave it to me a long time ago, and I'm just starting to reread it. It's called The Religious Function of the Psyche, and it's by a depth psychologist called Lionel Corbett. And he's <coughs> talking about this psychological experience of what he calls like the numinous. And he said, whether you externalize that as like a creator God and relate to the numinous as some sort of supreme being outside of you, or if you relate to it as an aspect of your own consciousness, is kind of dependent on your own personal psychology. So sometimes I, I think in terms of talking about these different things, there is the history, but is the history a result of people's psychological needs? Sometimes it, it's just a question for me of like, oh, there's certain really basic psychological needs that then manifest. For example, this idea of the numinous kind of manifesting as an external being, a lot of the devotional aspects of Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism is very psychological. It's like, this is what causes you to suffer. This is what the cause of it is. And this is what the end of it is. End of story. But a lot of people seem to have a need to have devotion to some being. And so there's this whole devotional aspect of Buddhism that's also developed. And a lot of cultural Asian Buddhists, like I have a, a friend who's from Nepal and he's a Tamang. And we guided some pilgrimages together. And then he actually came down to Bodh Gaya to take a class for me on the Four Noble Truths because he's like, I've been a Buddhist my whole life. And I don't know anything about the Four Noble Truths because in my house there's the shrine room and you light the incense and you bow down and pray. And it's this very kind of theistic relationship to the Buddha that he had from his culture. And then he came to study. So I know I'm going on some tangents, but you know, sometimes I think the history is a result of psychology too. That's, that's one of the ways that I tend to think of it too. Right. And that's you know, comes back to this difference between the theoretical and how it actually manifests, yeah. right? For people in a specific cultural situation, right? So theoretically, there are big differences between Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. On a practical basis, you still find the same 
You know, some people gravitate towards the, the scholastic approach. Some people gravitate <coughs> towards uh, living in a cave. Uh, some people gravitate uh, towards uh, deity yeah. worship, yeah. you know, in some form. Uh, uh, some people aren't interested at all, whatever, well, even if they grow up in a Buddhist culture, you know, they're just not interested. And so, whether it's Thailand, Tibet, uh, that's just kind of a human nature when, it, when Buddhism goes into a whole society, you may find the actual manifestations on a daily basis not really that different, right? I think you, yeah, you had a question, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Hello, is it okay? Um, it seems like a big difference with Tibetan Buddhism is they deal a lot with um, what happens after dying mm. um, that other traditions just mm. say they don't mm. know. Because mm. um, I remember reading the book of the Tibet, or the book of death the and Tibetan dying. The book of the dead? Or, yeah, the oh, book. Um, and hearing that yeah. uh, author speak in San Francisco and getting really scared at one time because it seems uh. the bardos impact your next life. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, which you talked about earlier, reincarnation, sham the shamanistic yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. influence in the bardos. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just just to speak on that point, um, it's true. In the Tibetan tradition, I think it is true that there's a more maybe emphasis and a lot, certainly a lot more books. I was taking, many years ago, I was here uh, in the Buddhist chaplaincy program in this they were having a, a day long on death and dying and a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and he kind of made a joke and he said, well in like Zen and Theravada there's one or two books about death and dying in the Tibetan tradition there's like 15 or something. Like what, what is that? And it's true, there's a lot of um, specific uh, training around the death process. In my own tradition there are very specific things to do you know, to guide someone through or to do yourself if you're conscious during the death process. I've been, I've heard there's a name for it now. I used to call myself a midwife for the death process because for quite a number of years I was associated with the Buddhist hospice and was able to be with people guiding them through these specific practices at the time of death. And in the Tibetan tradition, it's really emphasized that your state of mind at the time of death helps to determine your rebirth in the next life. So that's the real reason for the emphasis on the time of death is said to be a very, uh, you know, just kind of a very important time. And so one of the things that we do without going into detail at all about all those practices is try and, you know, get the person to either be in a virtuous state of mind, if they're conscious, remember the virtues that they did in their life, try and kind of think positively about their life. And then if they're not conscious to do certain practices and prayers to kind of create this energy in this environment around the time of death. So it's really true. And I don't know what's done in other traditions, but it seems to me to be for sure that in the Tibetan tradition, the time of death is very emphasized in terms of a practice opportunity, really is one way of looking at it with a lot of specific prayers and practices. Just because there is this idea that then you'll, if you're next rebirth is a beneficial one, you'll have more opportunity to carry on on the spiritual path. So that's the idea is like, then you'll have another rebirth with opportunities, you know, to kind of continue the spiritual path. That's, that's the point of that. And I don't know if you want to mention in the Theravada. Yeah, in the, in the Pali tradition, uh, rebirth is very much woven into the Buddhist teaching. I think it's only in the more Western secularized version of Buddhism that they say, oh, it's more, it's just about this lifetime and what happens after death. Right? Uh, so in the Pali tradition, it's both. It's, it's very, what we do this lifetime, it's very this life oriented. But there is a lot of, I mean, everybody's interested in what happens. Yeah, after death. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everyone's. Uh, and so, <clears throat> and, 
and my, you know, my stepfather recently died, so I've been having discussions with, with my siblings about this, and they're asking me and say, well, personally, I, ha I may have beliefs based on, on cause, certain causes and conditions, but I keep in mind that I don't have any direct experience with that, so uh, ultimately, we, we still don't know. Right? And so that part is true. We don't know. But there are, uh, there's, uh, within the suttas, it's very clear that the Buddha talked about rebirth and, and uh, generally practicing in a way will lead one to a place where you know, you're going to reap the results of the karma <coughs> that you've made while you're living. Right? Um, you can't just wait till the end you know, to start practicing and say, well, yeah. and say, well, well, it's my final mind, mind state that's really going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll just kind of let it go. And, mm -hmm. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm about to die, then I'll think, oh, may all beings be happy. Because cause at that time... Yeah, that's not what we do. But I, and, and I know, and I know that's not what you do, yeah. but sometimes people, th yeah. people misinterpret, maybe sometimes mm -hmm. that, that it's that final state. But that final mental state is based on a whole lifetime of living. And if people are dying quickly and they talk about your whole life flashing in front of your eyes, then uh, mm -hmm. that's going to be what determines your mental mm -hmm. state. So mm -hmm. everything we do from now until we die is going to determine where we're at at the mm -hmm. moment of death and what, what goes on from there. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, there's just a, a large body of anecdotal uh, evidence from Thai masters that I've lived with uh, and I give that a lot of weight, you know, no matter, I give the, the, certainly what it says in the suttas a lot of weight, but uh, living masters, when they actually say they can remember their past lives or they can see um, beings passing away, you know, someone passes away and they can see them um, where they've been reborn or they can see that they, they're still hanging around, their consciousness is still around, uh, listening to them tell about their personal stories, uh, that, you know, that kind of reinforces a, a sense of, well, maybe this is the way it is. I think when I first went to Thailand, mm. <coughs> mid-twenties, it's like, well, rebirth, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, I don't know, right? Devas, maybe they exist, maybe they don't exist, I don't mm. know, right? Mm. Doesn't really, at that point, it did not matter to me at all, because I knew right here and right now, this is very beneficial to me. Right. So I just kind of kept it as an open question. But as time goes on, and certain, you know, just certain evidence, a body of evidence grows and saying, well, okay, well, this does make sense both theoretically and also um, there, are, there are a number of case studies specifically by a researcher named Stevenson about rebirth and young children who can have very specific memories of, uh, that, that seem to indicate uh, their past lives. Uh, so there's a growing body of evidence for that, which creates a certain belief, but I keep in mind that this is simply a belief. It doesn't mean it's fact. Could, could I just say it sounds very shamanic to me to be able to see the lives and see the energy. But one thing that bothers me a little or that has been on my mind is you could be maybe a schmuck for 50 years and then get, you know, uh, become more aware in your last 10 years and there's all these causes and conditions that outbalance or outweigh perhaps your last 10 years and then you might die with drugs in a hospital room in a just you know a completely non-peaceful state and then you might be doomed to another life then of tremendous suffering of schmuckness yes <laughs> well your last 10 we tend, years yeah. have been, we tend know, to return. It's almost to what we like develop. you're trying to make retribution for your last ten years, mm -hmm. in some way. Do you have any comment? Yeah, I mean, in, in Buddhist terms, if we're a schmuck for fifteen years, we don't we don't escape that just because we adopt a new belief system or say something different. But we can uh, karma is uh, mitigated you know, um, by other factors. So. Uh, even if we've been a schmuck for 50 years, it doesn't mean we're stuck with that either. It doesn't mean it disappears, but it doesn't mean we're stuck with that. And then there's a flexibility there, uh, and at you mm. know, the point of death, is uh, the mental state and rebirth is based on 
many factors. I mean, mm -hmm. not to oversimplify mm -hmm. it or make it too complicated, but the, the state of mind when we die, mm -hmm. it does make a, a difference, right? Even a, even a very good person may die in fear or, or, mm -hmm. or even aggression, right? So that does make a difference. But then that will not necessarily outweigh how we've lived our whole life. Mm -hmm. And then if you take in innumerable past lives into existence, well then, uh, it's, it's, mm. it's not a sure thing, you know? That's why the Buddha was emphasizing s so mm. strongly to practice in this lifetime when we have the opportunity, uh, when we have uh, health and the teachings and supportive community, this is like everything you need, don't be complacent mm -hmm. um, because you can't, you can't assume that we're going to have these, all these conditions in the future and, and and at the point of death, is, it is really uncertain. Until you reach a certain level of attainment, it's really uncertain uh, what will happen. And this is one of the things, as Achan said, and it's also <clears throat> really emphasized in the Tibetan tradition, this idea of always, like when we're on the path or interested in spiritual things, so as not to waste whatever precious time we have, whether it's five minutes, 10 years, or 50 years, one of the things that we emphasize in the Tibetan tradition is reflection on what we call the precious human rebirth and all of the opportunity and qualities that we have in this life. And so the Tibetan lamas always say, when you wake up in the morning, you know, because sometimes we can live our lives so reactively and you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen today? I've got a meeting with my boss, yuck. But always to take some moments as much as possible in the morning to reflect and just go, whoa, I have this incredible opportunity. Like, for one, I'm a human being. Buddhism talks about different realms of existence. I have all my faculties. I still have a mind that functions. I've met with the spiritual path. I'm able to do these practices. Like, reviewing in your mind how incredible and rare and precious so you don't spend that day binge-watching past episodes of Orange is the New Black, for example, just saying, you know, or whatever it may be. So you don't waste the time you have. And then reminding yourself, it's like the flip side of that coin is, whoa, I have such an amazing, precious opportunity, and tick, tick, tick. I have no idea how much longer I have. So you try, I mean, not in a way to make you neurotic and flipped out, but in a way to just go, wow, what do I want to do with this amazing, precious day that I woke up this morning, I'm still alive. You know, so it sort of reorients your life to kind of what's most beneficial and most positive. And then even, I mean, when you said the 10 years, I think of, of one of my closest students who's a prison inmate. I teach in prisons and have been now for 11 years. So I've known him since my very first prison class and he's gotten transferred around like three or four times. And he used to be a gang leader. We've never talked about the crime that he's in prison, but because of his security level and you know, sentence, which is now 40 years, I'm sure it's murder, like for sure, and probably like horrible. He's unbelievable and amazing in his 10 years of Buddhist practice, like quite honestly, his mind has transformed so much. Even though he has that history, we all have deep pockets of both positive and negative karma from past lives that we don't even know about. So it's sort of like the first 50 years of this life. Not to mention what we did in our first 20 years. Yeah, not to mention <laughs> this life. <laughs> we won't go into detail. We'll go into you know, so I, I, I think I've seen from, you know, my own mm. example, but especially I always think of this guy that I know and I've just seen this transformation. And so if he dies tomorrow... I seriously am not going to have any worries about him because I just feel like he's extraordinary. So, so even in short periods of time, like we do talk about His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, we need to hold this perspective that our spiritual progress is really, we're talking many lifetimes. And we should be seeing change in ourselves through our practice in this life too. Otherwise, you're not doing something right. Like if you're not becoming kinder and more patient and more spacious and more, you know, just let, letting go, check in with your teachers, something's wrong. And ultimately really holding this long-term vision of enlightenment, liberation, 
mostly many lifetimes of practice. So both things simultaneously, and it's kind of interesting to hold that balance. But when I heard His Holiness the Dalai Lama explain that, it helped. It was like, yeah, you will see change and don't expect a quick fix to all of our disturbing emotions, which are so ingrained. You know, so one time I was teaching in prison and I always give examples of my own disturbing emotions. I just think it's very effective and there's plenty of material there for me to draw from. And so I was talking about a time I got really angry at someone and one of the inmates later, you know, it was weeks later, came to me and he said, oh my God, when you said that, I was so disillusioned. Like, you're a Buddhist nun and you still get angry? And I'm like, duh, human being, like, trying but not cooked yet, you know. It's this idea that you see progress, but it's kind of a, it's a long haul. I mean, they're in there and they're deep, right? So, so I don't know if that helps. I think I got off track there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, it's 11.33 now, so we open up for questions yeah, for a bit. Yeah, let's do and then that because we'll, I see know, some so hands up and we also have some written ones lunchtime. down too. Yeah, yeah, here and then here. Yeah. Oh, whoops, microphone. Um, the question is, uh, is it possible to be a Buddhist without believing in reincarnation? It, it is certainly possible to, to practice um, most of the aspects of, of uh, the Buddhist training. Whether you want to call yourself a Buddhist or not really depends on, on you. Like, I mean, even when I went to Thailand, even though when I joined the monastery, I didn't really think of myself as a Buddhist because I wasn't interested in joining a religion, but I was very interested in in meditation and uh, living a wholesome lifestyle and uh, developing wisdom, and and so well, I know right here and right now that these are going to benefit me, right? These are going to be beneficial not just for me, but for you know everyone around me, right? I know this is going to be beneficial. Um, some of these other questions I can just put in the basket of I don't know. And it's okay. You just kind of set it aside for now, and it's fine. Uh, so we can certainly engage in the in the practice itself, uh, and then things tend to clarify as we go along. Yeah, and I would agree. I think. There's a difference between saying I'm not sure or I don't know or I'm still kind of struggling with this idea and just rejecting outright. Like when we look at the ultimate goals of Buddhism being liberation and enlightenment, hard to posit those goals without many life. Like what are you being freed from if you don't believe that there's this cycle of rebirth? So I think I I often tell people for most people grew up in like European Judeo-Christian culture the ideas of karma and rebirth are really different and take some grappling with. And I think we can, we can hold kind of an idea of like, wow, I don't know, I'm still working with these ideas. I'm just going to take it on board as a working hypothesis for the moment. I mean, I don't know absolutely incontrovertibly that there is karma and rebirth. I'm just taking it as my working hypothesis, and you can see where that brought me, you know. So, so I'm still saying, you know, I'm not sure. And one of the things, like Achan says, I remember a question I was asked once. I was teaching in New Zealand many years ago, and a woman... Out of the blue, it wasn't at all the topic of whatever I was teaching, but she goes, if I could prove to you right now that there's no such thing as karma and rebirth, how would your life change? And I thought for about five nanoseconds, and I was like, you know what, not at all. I'm so much happier with this life than I was with sex and drugs and rock and roll. I mean, I tried it all. Like Achan says, don't even ask us about the first 20 years. In my case, it was more like 35 it didn't bring me happiness. Like living a simple life where I'm devoting myself to my spiritual practice and benefiting others. Dude, that's the answer to happiness in this life. I don't think I'd change a thing, right? So it's like, I think that's the attitude. But if you just outright reject, 
I find it hard then that you would really call yourself a Buddhist and there's some famous ones that do but it just doesn't make sense to me that you could still say oh I'm a Buddhist but yeah there's absolutely no way there's any such thing as karma and rebirth yeah yeah and you have to be realistic I mean realistically we we can believe that there's rebirth but we don't know that for a fact and you can believe that there's no rebirth but we, you don't know that for a fact yeah. right and so either way is, is untenable. Yeah. And that's, that's where fixed views become an obstacle. Yeah. So it is this way or it's not that way when the reality is yeah. we don't know yet. My teacher, Lama Sopa Rinpoche, one of my Tibetan lamas says, I love the way he says this, he goes, there's no definite proof that there's no rebirth, but plenty of evidence that it probably does exist. Like these, uh, you know, memories of people in these studies by this professor Ian Stevenson. So it's, yeah, I think it's just kind of holding that that view. We had somebody up here. Mike? I have a pretty loud voice. It's the recording, yeah. Well, as a Zen Buddhist, I completely appreciate the don't know mind because, you know, based on Suzuki Roshi's don't know, it's very much a part of Zen practices, I don't know. And I personally really like that, not holding to a fixed view. But, my, but what I wanted to link it to is earlier you said there was a proliferation of sutras. And in the Mahayana, I think not only the idea of the bodhisattva, but um, emptiness teachings. The prajnaparamita, wisdom, the wisdom of perfection teachings, that going, starting with the, idea, the Buddha's idea that there's no fixed and separate self, it expands it that there's no fixed and separate anything, including the teachings. That could be conceived as pretty radical, and of course this fruition of that no fixed anything is in Zen. I'm not aware of, um, I didn't even know this so ignorant I was, or am still probably, that Tibetan Buddhism was Mahayana because I didn't link uh, these very important emptiness teachings with Tibetan practice. So that's my question. Is that a part of your practice or mentality or life view that there is nothing to hold on to, including Buddhism? Yeah, absolutely. In in the Tibetan tradition, we definitely emphasize emptiness teachings. Now, the philosophical, as Achan mentioned, there was this different philosophical schools that kind of developed later on in Buddhism, these lineages of, of philosophical views. Uh, in What I've heard from the Zen tradition is the philosophical view of emptiness that they propound is comes from the mind-only school of Buddhism. In the Tibetan tradition, we talk about the middle way consequence view. Madhyamika Prasangika is the Sanskrit term. So the way that emptiness is taught and meditated upon in the Tibetan tradition will be different than in the Zen tradition. And one of the things that can become confusing, we've talked about the advantages of being able to practice and study with all these different traditions in North America as they've spread here. And one of the things that can be confusing is unless you realize there's a slightly different philosophical basis for some of these philosophical views, it can get confusing. So that's the differentiation, but it's very, very much emphasized and the view of the middle way consequence school that's a really long story but we often talk about things being empty of inherent existence or empty of existence from their own side independent of mental labeling and so that's how we emphasize it in the middle way consequence school but again that's like a big you know kind of a long story but yeah very much emphasized in the Tibetan tradition yeah and just to clarify. I mean, it's all schools of Buddhism that will, that teach emptiness. I mean, the, uh, the concept of sunyata, emptiness, began there in the Pali Suttas. And then there was a, a whole body that was then um, developed around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, I, it's part of, the, uh, of a tradition, like you were saying, especially in India at that time when, with Nalanda universities and other great uh, scholastic universities that there was this uh, huge commentarial tradition and so 
fantastic teachings came from that, from very uh, advanced and uh, well-studied teachers, you know, creating this volume of, of material. Now, wh as far as, like what you say is absolutely correct in terms of not holding on to anything, even Buddhism. But it's a bit like acting, you know, where they say, well, forget your lines, but you have to know your lines before you can forget your lines, right, to act natural, right? Uh, or like free jazz, I mean, you, you can't just sit down at a piano uh, and play real free jazz without having spent years and innumerable times doing scales, right? So it's like you have to know the teachings thoroughly before you can truly forget them and let them go. And that's beautiful. That's, I think that's brilliant. And, and I feel this is just, pers this is just personally me, um, maybe why I'm a Zen Buddhist, is that ultimately you have to find the truth. You have to find the truth within yourself. So you, I study, 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 read, 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 but ultimately I have to experience that on my own. And I think that's what I mean by giving up on the Buddhist thing because our ideas, even the idea of emptiness, can really, it's like our glasses, a prescription of our glasses, form how we view our lives and others, etc. Ultimately, and I'm getting to be old and older and older, I want to be able to step out of that. And I do agree. I mean, I do study all the time. But ultimately, you have to find it on your own. And I think that's consistent with what the Buddha said, right? In the famous Kalama Sutta, everyone likes to quote. You know? All right. We've got, yes. let's see, we've got some so, written down ones, 11, too. Yeah. Should we... Uh, however you want to structure it. Yeah, maybe we'll take a couple of the ones that were written down and we'll have, did you have, oh, okay. Can we take this one? And sure, okay? sure. Uh, and then, and uh, yeah. Uh, it was a comment more than a question. Uh, uh, there are people who don't believe in karma and rebirth who specifically label themselves as secular Buddhists. And though I tend to worry that you could be just as attached to the non-belief in those things <laughs> as you could mm. be attached to the belief in them. So it's, uh, but it, it's, a, it's, it's an option. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I concur. Yeah, it's, it's the same. It's, it's, it can, attachment to a specific belief is often the crux of the issue and the self that we form around it. So if, if someone says, I don't believe in rebirth, right? There can be a lot of self around that where the reality is they don't know for sure. Mm. Please go ahead. Maybe we could begin the this next one first? session, or maybe we begin the afternoon with the answer to that yeah, one. Yeah, sure. That where you want to read so what it is so the person read one. will know that that's when we're going to deal with it? Oh, that's all right. We'll start right. in the afternoon. Okay. Um, that one is kind of specifically for me. I noticed there was a reference to levels of attainment. How does this square with Suzuki Roshi saying that you are already enlightened, but you could use a little improvement? <laughs> Something like that. How does this square with right effort? Doesn't the idea of doing practices to achieve enlightenment contradict this? I can. Do you want to start? Yeah, yeah. sure, I'll start. So um, this idea of you're already enlightened, but you could use a little improvement. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, there's two approaches to Buddha nature. I'll kind of use that terminology because that's what I'm familiar with, this idea of your Buddha nature. And one is called the uh, developmental model, and one's called the discovery model. So one says... Buddha nature exists as a potential that needs to be developed, right? So we have that potential within us that then we develop through our practices. One says it's like there's a little Buddha inside that's sort of covered up with all of this stuff and we need to sort of unwrap it, unpeel it, and reveal it. And I read this beautiful book by His Holiness the Dalai Lama where he's talking about these two different views and he said... It comes to the same intended point. He says, does it work better for your mind to think, oh, it's already there, 
right? It's just covered over by delusions and negative karma and ignorance and I just need to get rid of all of that stuff. Does that inspire you or does it inspire you? Does the idea of a potential more inspire you of like, oh, I've got this little like potential thing that I need to sort of catalyze and feed and develop and grow and then eventually then it'll become, you know, a fully developed Buddha. And I think that those two approaches, I I understand. Like for some people, one approach works. For some, the others work. For me, I know I'm still definitely under the control of delusions and karma and ignorance. And I don't feel (sighs) that I have the quality. I know, shock. I'm a Buddhist nun. Can you believe it? You know, (laughs) so this idea of I'm already a Buddha... Maybe so, if I think of that discovery model, but I also know it's obscured. So that's another word that comes up a lot in Buddhism is obscured by defilements. So it doesn't really matter to me one way or another. I think they're just conceptual ways of thinking the same thing. I still know I need work, whether it's to remove the defilements from what's already there, develop the potential. It doesn't really matter. I know what I need to do. The path is kind of the same. So I think that's that's sort of the the attitude that we take in in the Tibetan tradition. And the Theravada, the even though we don't have the term Buddha nature, nowhere in the Pali Suttas is the term Buddha nature. Uh, but still, especially in the forest tradition. Uh, it's very, it's both really combined. I think yeah. I started in Zen, and so uh, um, my <coughs> teachers would not give me much detail at all. Um, and then when I first went to Theravada, one of the things, one of the dramatic differences I noticed was there was uh, so much uh, detail in this is these qualities of mind form a basis and then that leads to these conditions which forms these and then this this all fits mm-hmm. together and it was a it was a beautiful kind of step by step map mm-hmm. right and Tibetan tradition has mm-hmm. that as well uh, but at the same time how generally how I view uh, the, the idea of practice is that the the, the original nature of mind is is pure and untainted, but then it's like covered over with these layers of tar and dirt and muck, you know, kind of. And then as we gradually make the effort to maybe peel a bit of that off, we may get occasionally a ray of light shooting out. <laughs> you know? We think we have a little, little tiny ray of light coming out, we think, oh, that's it. So, well, no, that's maybe just a taste of it. And then you wake up the next and then, morning. And then like, it gets covered oh, over oh. with the tar and the muck again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then you start watching episodes of Oranges so in the Orange Black. And black. <laughs> Aren't and you impressed we even know that exists? I mean, <laughs> I just went a little, you know. <laughs> but, you, but you do... But I've never watched it. Have well, you? How, well, how, yeah, but Game Have of Thrones. No, I've never watched. I, I've never watched Orange is the New yeah, Black. Yeah, me neither. Right. Me neither. Anyways, off subject. But um, and so there is this. I think both this idea that you know the the nature of the human we call it mind, heart, consciousness is is originally pure, but then covered over by all this muck. But Sometimes that idea that, oh, we're enlightened mm-hmm. already, that can be misused mm-hmm. either to undermine the effort that it takes you know, or to justify anything, right? Which is, of mm-hmm. course, a westernized uh, mm-hmm. way of perverting the teachings. You say, oh, we're enlightened already, so, you know, hey. whether we sit meditation, we're enlightened already, whether uh, we go to a Grateful Dead concert, we're enlightened already, um, whether we're, we get drunk and stoned, we're enlightened already. Right? So it's all and one then we taste. and you try that for a while and you realize well actually I don't Doesn't think I'm very that way. enlightened <laughs> yeah. except for the Grateful Dead concerts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll debate that in the car on the way home. Yeah. All right. We had another question that I think was specifically for me when you do a 6-year retreat, how do you decide when it's time to end the retreat? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, because I'm sure everybody in this room is, you know, itching to do a six-year retreat. So, yeah, I'll, I'll just talk about my experience, which relates to, like I was saying when I was a hippie teenager and kind of read this book and this whole bodhisattva ideal. 
there was a certain point in my practice where I really felt like I needed to deepen my practice. So I went to my main teacher, and at that point, I think I was thinking, oh, maybe six months. I was working for my teacher in his international headquarters, and I was like, oh, I'll take a leave of absence. In fact, I know exactly who can take over for me and go into retreat for about six months. You know, that was kind of as far as I could think. And what was happening for me was I felt like my compassion was really outstripping my wisdom. Like I felt like I really cared about people, but I didn't have a clue how to really help. And mostly I messed up, like in my desire to help others. You know, I mostly, and, and I was just kind of feeling like, wow, I need to really develop some more qualities, especially wisdom and, you know, to really be able to help. And at that point, my teacher advised that it would be good for me to go into a three-year retreat, which is a tradition in Tibetan Buddhism. It's actually three years and three cycles of the moon. So it usually lasts three years, three months, and three days. That's kind of the traditional thing. And then um, it extended for another one of those after that. And then at the end of all of that, what was happening for me was like the reverse. I, in the Tibetan tradition, we motivate not only every morning, but every session with, you know, I'm setting this aspiration to be, you know, of benefit to all sentient beings. And at the end of kind of the time that I was in retreat, it's like all sentient beings, who are they? I've been in solitude for six years. Like I felt like I was losing the compassion side then. And it really felt important to me to serve, to come out and serve and get in touch with people again, you know, because that was so much of a part of my motivation. I was feeling that things were going very dry for me because of the solitude, which was so important for so long. But then it you know, the balance tilted. So luckily I had my teacher that I could check in with and just go, wow, you know, I'm feeling like now maybe I should come out and serve. And he, you know, verified and said, yeah, very little, I think what his his language at that point was, very little benefit now for staying in retreat, like come out. And of course, within five minutes of coming out, I was right in the face of all the suffering of all those sentient beings I'd lost touch with. And it was great, you know, and that's actually when I started teaching. It was the summer of 2006 that I came out of long retreat and started teaching and really felt like, you know, my wish to connect with others really did help, you know, keep me on track with the compassion side. So that was just my my story in answer to that question. Great question. Yeah, yeah, you feel it, you know, you have an instinct. And now I'm kind of feeling, after being out and teaching for 10 years, now I'm feeling a bit more of a feel to spend a little bit less time engaged and maybe more time in retreat. I don't know quite what that looks like yet, but that's, you know, it's just an instinct really of like, you just titrate to where you are and you get a little bit, you know, of an, of an intuition about what's, what's right for your own practice. Buddha's neat, let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> As we come up to uh, lunchtime, <coughs> I guess one thing uh, that I would encourage is uh, to use lunchtime as a period of meditation. Right? It's so easy just to say, okay, lunchtime, and then it just becomes this uh, kind of a cacophony of, of socializing. But we can do that anytime. Um, if we have a whole day of meditation and teachings, then uh, transition through the mealtime is 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 very important and that's going to set the tone for the afternoon so if you can uh, approach eating in the same way that you would approach a session of meditation you know give that a try and see what results it has right? there's so many ways of doing that whether it is uh, in terms of um, bringing consciously bringing up a sense of gratitude for for the 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 good food and the good quantity of food, quality and quantity of, of food that we have, um, being very mindful of 
the flavors, the taste, uh, mindful of our reactions, uh, mental reactions to uh, when we see food, when we smell it, uh, when we taste it, what's that do to our mind? Uh, can we stay mindful from the beginning right through to the end of the whole process? We might be mindful of the first, very first bite and mindful of, oh, that's delicious, and then the mind, you know, before we know it, uh, all the food's gone and we've been kind of daydreaming or, or whatnot. So making the effort to keep coming back and paying attention to the, the chewing, the flavor, paying attention to our bodies, paying attention to the mental states that uh, exist while we're meditating. So there's a lot to do there, even, uh, and uh, talking just makes it more uh, distracting to be able to do that. I'm not saying that it has to be in silence, it's not like a retreat where we're in silence, but just want to encourage you know, for people who want to really treat the mealtime as meditation, um, you know, take this opportunity, the unique opportunity to do that. And if you are talking, just be aware that some people are eating as meditation, and so try to speak in a considerate and, and toned down way. Mm. <clears throat> do you want to announce 